The meetings that have begun tonight are the last for ten nights, if the Lord will, this week and next week at 7.30. And thank you for coming tonight. I trust that God will bless his word to our hearts and give us a better understanding of the scriptures of truth. The subject in these ten nights I'm going to call Gathering Unto His Name. And that subject is the subject of a book that uh, I am now writing, uh, attempting to write, as likely many of you know. Of course, the difficulty in writing a book is to try to find the time to do it, and time has been a very great problem. But I have written 19 chapters of the book, and uh, in these meetings I am going to try to give you at least the main substance of what is written in the book. I can't possibly cover all the material that is in the book, of course, but uh, it is quite a different matter to speak on subjects than to write. Uh, they, they are very, very different. So what is written will not be what I am speaking, but it will be the same truth, although expressed likely quite differently. But tomorrow night, if the Lord spares us till then, I hope to have an outline for each one who is present at the meeting, and therefore, if I pass over material tonight that you do not grasp, or if I give you uh, titles or names or outlines that you are not able to put down, uh, if the Lord willing, tomorrow night uh, I'll give you an outline uh, of the material for tonight and uh, for the meeting tomorrow night, if the Lord will. We just arrived home about supper time today, so it was impossible to have uh, an outline for the meeting tonight to give to you. Uh, I have one other minor announcement to make that uh, embarrasses me to have to make, but uh, I have managed to develop a new set of ulcers, and uh, so I will not be going out for any meals while these meetings are on, and uh, if at all possible, while I'm at home, I would love to be able to get the ulcers healed up, because certainly when I'm away from home, I have very little hope of doing that. So uh, if the Lord will, I would appreciate your prayers that I will not return to the kind of problems I had 12 years ago when I had to have three surgeries to try to correct the problem. Now, we have read tonight uh, two passages in the Gospel of Matthew, and one in the Epistle to the Ephesians, that deal with the subject of the church and the churches. And I have said that the subject that I am going to speak on, I am calling Gathering Onto His Name. Now, to give you a little idea of what I have before me, I would like tonight to speak on a scriptural definition of church. And you'll notice that I didn't say the church because I would like to give you a scriptural definition of the church, but I would also like to give you a scriptural definition of the churches, of local assemblies. So the correct title for what I'm going to try to tell you tonight is a scriptural definition of church. Uh, tomorrow night, if the Lord spares us, I would like to give you a simple description of a local assembly. And that is truth that is very precious to us, and it will be the truth that will be occupying us mostly in the nights to come. I would like to take up the following night's significant distinctions between the body and an assembly. 
And the reason that that truth is so important is that in Christendom, we too are confused and often even in the writings of those who understand a great deal of the truth of gathering, scriptures that really apply to one have been applied to the other. I have gone through some 70 different books that deal with the truth of the church and the truth of the local assembly, and I have literally been astounded how many times, brethren, have used scriptures which are clearly speaking about the body of Christ, and yet they applied them to the local assembly and vice versa. And it is of the utmost importance that we know the distinction between the body and an assembly. And even tonight in this meeting we'll be speaking on some of the distinctions between the body and an assembly. So that will be actually the, the subject of the meeting, if the Lord will, on Wednesday evening. And then the following night, I would like to take up uh, what I have called a singular demonstration of a testimony for God on earth. And of course that deals with, a, with what the assembly is and how it functions. And then I would like to take up the Lord's Supper, and I've called that the Supreme Declaration of the Death of Christ. And then I would like to take up worship, the sincere devotion of believers as they gather together. And then I would like to take up a sovereign display, that is, headship displayed in a local company. And then to take up the spiritual dependence of an assembly, that is, our dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And that's a vast subject that deals, first of all, with the government of an assembly, and then deals with the gifts and the way they function, and then deals with the subject of priesthood and how the Spirit of God controls the holy priesthood in a local assembly. And then there are a number of other subjects which should be touched on, and whether there will be a night to deal with them or not remains to be seen. But I would like to take up the gospel testimony of an assembly, and I would like to take up reception into an assembly, and I would like to take up traditions of scripture, and I would like to take up assembly discipline. And if the Lord will, a subject that is very seldom taken up, I would like to take up assembly giving. And that's a vast amount of material, and uh, I assure you we will not be wasting time. We will try to cover the material as briefly as we can and as simply as we can, and yet as thoroughly as, as it is possible for me to do it. Now why do we go back again and again to the subject of the church and the churches? Martin Luther, on one occasion, was asked why it was that he constantly returned in his preaching and in his writings to the subject of justification by faith. And I think his answer uh, suits exactly my position tonight in taking up the church and the churches or gathering onto his name. Martin Luther said, in ancient times, when a walled city was under attack, if the attack came at the front gate, the city did not muster its defense at the back wall. Or if the attack came at the back corner of the city, the soldiers of the city were not lined up at the front of it. You see, the defense always is mustered where the attack is being made. And Satan has so successfully attacked the truth of gathering in our time, so that much precious truth 
that was paid for dearly. Godly men and women with the word of God before them on their knees. Learn the blessed truths of gathering unto the name of the Lord Jesus Christ alone and paid a great price for it. Personal price. Oftentimes family turned against them and friends. Society rejected them. And they were looked upon as being oddities. But they bore that reproach gladly for the name of Christ. And today we are in great danger of losing a great heritage that has been given to us. It must be preserved if there is to be collective testimony preserved for God until the Lord Jesus comes back again. So the attack is being made and the defenses must be mustered where the attack is being made. Now tonight we have read in Matthew chapter 16 some very well-known verses regarding the church that the Lord Jesus said he would build. And that's a remarkable statement of the Lord Jesus, most familiar to you, I am certain. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Before we even look at the subject of the church that the Lord Jesus will build, we have to look at how we interpret the Bible. Now, I know you have heard me speak about this at times, perhaps briefly, perhaps on another subject. But it is necessary today to give a restatement of how we interpret the Bible. And I know there are many people who never think of that subject, but it is vitally important, and I'll tell you why. There are some who tell us that uh, each has his own way of interpreting Scripture. And to kind of strengthen their case, they say, even great theologians do not agree on many passages of the Bible. So, uh, every person is more or less left to themselves. And this is why there is such a, a great a variety of opinion on a lot of passages, or on a lot of practices. This is why in Christendom you have all kinds of organizations and systems that profess to be going by the Bible. Because, after all, uh, the Bible is a very difficult book, and everybody must do the best they can to interpret it according to the light they have. But you know, people who talk like that, uh, oftentimes it winds up with a far more serious uh, conclusion even than what I have said so far. Because it, it kind of finishes up like this, that really we should never be very dogmatic about what we think the Bible teaches, because after all, we could be wrong. And maybe none of us have the ability to be absolutely certain that what we are saying is truly based on the Word of God. I don't think you think that, but many do. And those that you meet from time to time will have ideas like that. That the Bible is a kind of a book that you can almost make say anything you want. Now the Bible is not that kind of a book. You can be sure that God conveyed his mind to man. If God was revealing his will, he would do it in language that man could understand. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit of God is the divine teacher. For not only do we have inspiration so that the Word of God is God-breathed, but we have illumination so that the Spirit of God is able to impress upon our hearts the meaning of that which is written. And I hope every one of us tonight have a longing desire to know exactly what the Holy Spirit said and what he meant when he said, so that we know the meaning of Scripture. 
all of us are aware that much preaching and teaching that is done is not really the meaning of scripture. Much that is given is really application. And application is good. I am not here to tell you that you should not apply the scriptures because the Spirit of God applies the scriptures. And absolutely there should be application of the Word of God. But no application should ever be given unless the true meaning of the passage from which the application is being made is understood. You should always understand the meaning before you give any application. And no application should be ever given that is not in keeping with that meaning. But the first thing, the absolute primary thing in reading the Bible is to read it clearly and to give the sense and to cause people to understand the reading. Now how do we do that? Well, there are what we know as laws of interpretation. In the, in the theological world, they call that subject hermeneutics. But whatever they may call it, that really doesn't have any great meaning to you tonight. The fact is that there are principles by which the Bible is interpreted. And I'm going to try to tell you some of those principles that apply to our subject. I'm certainly not going to cover all the grounds of the principles of interpretation. But there are certain principles of interpretation that have a great meaning when we apply that meaning to the church and the churches. It was Miles Coverdale, the man who first interpreted or translated the Bible into the English language. The very first English translation. It was Miles Coverdale who said, that when you read the Bible, it will greatly help you to understand Scripture if you mark not only what is spoken or written, but of whom, to whom, with what words, at what time, where, for what purpose, with what circumstances, considering what goes before and what follows. And that's one of the most concise statements of biblical hermeneutics that I have ever read. Because each of the points that he covers is of vital importance if we're going to understand the scriptures. Now, of course, the principles that Miles Coverdale mentioned are really principles for understanding almost anything. But they have a very particular meaning when we're trying to understand the Bible. Now, the very first law, it's the last law that Miles Coverdale mentioned, but it's the very first law of importance to us. And that is the law of context. And it is of the greatest importance to understand that you never should interpret a single statement of the Bible out of its context. There are times when the Spirit of God may do that. He may take an Old Testament passage and he may take it out of its context. But after all, he is the author of the scriptures. And he has the right to use his words in a different way if it so pleases him. But we have no such right. So that you never interpret a single statement of scripture out of the context. And the context, of course, as you know, is what goes before and what follows after. And always in the understanding of the scripture, we obey that law, the law of context, first of all. There would not be many of the cults existing today, at least not teething verses from the Bible to support their teaching, if they had recognized the law of context. The second law that is of the greatest importance in understanding the church and the churches 
is the law of relevance. Now this is the way the law of relevance works. God's word was given at one time. Why not was given over a period of, of many hundreds of years. Let's say 1600 years would compass the writing of the, of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But I mean it was given by God in its entirety. It was a faith once for all delivered. And the scriptures, when they were completed, contained what God would have us know about divine truth. And it has no improvement. You cannot possibly make it better. Adding to it is a sin that the Bible condemns in its very closing verses. And taking from it is just equally a greater sin. So the law of relevance just means this that the word of God was given at one time for all time. And let me tell you what that means now in the subject we're looking at. We should never say, well, in the days of the New Testament, it was the normal thing for all believers to be baptized and to be gathered with a company of believers in a local church, in a local assembly. And they all met in that scriptural way. Whereas today, believers are scattered everywhere. You have all kinds of organizations and systems, and you have believers in many of them. And so we can hardly apply what's in the New Testament to our conditions today. But you see, that's denying the law of relevance. That's as much as saying the word of God was sufficient for those early days of testimony, but it's not sufficient for today. That's like saying God did not know what was coming, and, and therefore uh, we have to we have to find other things to guide us now. Uh, surely God must have understood that there would be these great organizations formed, and that men would band together and make great ecclesiastical systems. Surely God knew all that, and, and therefore God expects us to. Uh, no, He doesn't do any such thing, because we should never take the present confusion in Christendom with Christians divided up into sects and systems. We should never take that confused mess and, and put that back into the Bible and try to use the present circumstance as a tool to understand what was written in the New Testament. Therefore, we take the New Testament as it is written, and we believe that God knew everything that would come, and he gave us guidance for it all. And he never once mentioned any of these great organizations and systems except in a bad way. So uh, we believe that the word of God has been given to us to the end of time. How do I know that? Well, the scripture tells me that very, very clearly. When Paul was writing to Timothy, he said all scripture is, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, complete, truly furnished unto all good works. Nothing missing. It's all there. Nothing lacking. So the law of relevance just says that what was written was not only written for that time, it is written for our time. Be very careful of people who tell you that the, uh, that the culture of a certain time meant that women uh, wore head coverings. But our culture today is different. 
The word of God was not given to a culture. The word of God was given to God's people for the ages. And it applies as much today as it when it was written. That's the law of relevance. The law of positive pattern is a very important law in understanding assembly truth. Because what is given to us in the New Testament is a positive pattern. Whenever a blueprint is being drawn for a building, it tells what should be done, not what should not be done. And I've often used this as a crude and simple illustration. When the blueprint was being built for this building, it did not have written in the middle of this floor plan, no stairwell should be put in the middle of this auditorium. No such thing. It wasn't needed. You don't have to put into a blueprint all the things you should not do. What you put into a blueprint is positive facts that should be carried out. And when those positive facts are carried out, then everything is right. So what we have is a positive pattern of truth in the New Testament. The, the law of total mention is very important to us. You see, the law of total mention means that there are truths in the Bible that occupy a lot of space. For instance, there are 2,163 references in the Bible to the coming again of the Lord Jesus. Now that's interesting, isn't it? 2,163 references to the Lord's return. That occupies a great part of the Bible. Because those references are not just a word, those references are passages of the Bible. And it's amazing how much of the Bible is given to that subject. It must be very important to God. The law of total mention is very important when you consider that there are 21 verses to tell us how the heavens and earth were created. And there are 38 chapters to tell us how the tabernacle was to be constructed. How can you account for that? 21 verses that describe the, the flaming suns in the universe and all that we know in this physical creation. And 38 chapters to describe a little tent out in the desert that would have been, have been most unattractive to see from the outside where a, a, a wandering people are gathered around to worship Jehovah. Why did God give so many chapters about that tabernacle? You know the answer. Every one of it utters his glory. God loves to speak of his Son. He loves to give glory to the Lord Jesus. And so when God gives a great deal of mention to a subject, that law of total mention means that that's the most important subject. And you'll easily see how that applies to the church in the New Testament. Because the church is literally one of the major themes of the entire 27 books of the New Testament. So, uh, whenever you're, whenever you're thinking of uh, a subject in the Bible, you've got a large place in the Bible. If it has a large place in the Bible, you can be sure that that is a subject of the greatest importance. Then, of course, there is the law of plain sense. You wouldn't hardly think we would need to say such a thing, but we do need to say it. Because the law of plain sense is a very excellent law in understanding difficult passages. For instance, there are people who have taken an obscure passage. What is obscure to them? A difficult passage. For instance, acts in a plural 
Uh, the Spirit of God points out that it could not have had the meaning it had, because that seed is Christ. So that's the law of grammar. In other words, whether the word is a singular or a plural has a tremendous difference to its meaning. And from that I can learn that I should understand clearly the language that is being used and why the Spirit of God chose to use those particular words in those particular parts of speech. And that's why it's such a diligent study and a lifelong study. And I have learned, of course, in my own little life that it is far too short to learn the Word of God. These laws are not something we invented. In other words, what I have told you so far has solid scriptural basis. I hope you know that. It isn't a matter of some clever people saying, here's the way you understand things, and they've invented some kind of an artificial uh, framework, and then they bring this whole theory and they, they superimpose that on the scriptures, and they say, here, here now, here's the way to understand it, and if you use our key, if you use our method, you'll get the right understanding. That is not what I have done. You know what I've been doing? I've been actually giving you the way the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. In each one of these laws that I've tried to point out to you, what I've been really doing is telling you exactly how the Holy Spirit of God has interpreted Old Testament scriptures. But we have many, many examples in the New Testament of how the Old Testament is interpreted. For instance, Matthew 1 and 23 interprets for us Isaiah 7 and 14. Too bad modern unbelievers, and that's what they are, who deny the virgin birth, did not see that Matthew 1 and 23 is the Holy Spirit's interpretation of Isaiah 7 and 14. Because in Matthew 1 and 23 there's no problem whatever. It's the virgin that conceives and bears a son. And in keeping with the promise of Isaiah 7 and 14, it gives a literal sense of a literal virgin and a miraculous conception, a supernatural birth. And the New Testament interprets the Old Testament according to these very principles that I've been trying to tell you. When Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6 interprets Micah chapter 5 and verse 1, it does it in the most literal way. It says there's a village called Bethlehem with 20 families in it, and it's the birthplace of our Lord. So the New Testament does interpret the Old Testament according to these principles, and we learn from that how to interpret all Scripture. There is a law that affects us more tonight in what we have read. It is called the Law of First Mention. And the Law of First Mention is important because Matthew 16 is the first mention of the Church that the Lord Jesus would build. And it hadn't yet been built, it was still future. And Matthew 18 is the first mention of an assembly. And that law of first mention has very great meaning for this reason. That the first mention of the truth in the Bible, the very first time a, a, a truth is mentioned. For instance, the first time the Lamb is ever mentioned in the Bible. Where is that? Some think it's Genesis 4, but it is not Genesis 4. For no Lamb is mentioned in Genesis 4. The first Lamb that is ever mentioned is mentioned in a question, asked by Isaac of his father, and the answer that was given to that question 
is the truth of the Lamb. In its simplest, most concise form, Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And at the very first mention of the Lord Jesus as the lamb. I know that there was a lamb that Abel offered. I know that well. The New Testament tells me that in, 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 in Hebrews 12. But the first mention is Genesis 22. And the very first mention gives us many, many truths about the lamb. You can enumerate them. He is to be God's provision. In fact, he is to be deity. He is to be offered as a sacrifice. He is to feel the night. He is to be in the fire. All those things are mentioned in the first mention of the Lamb in the Bible. Now, the first mention of a subject doesn't give us all the truth of the subject. But the first mention of the subject gives us the truth in its, in its simplest. Uh, to, to use a word that has been coined quite freely in this regard in its embryo form. It is still to be developed. But here's the first mention of it. And in that first mention you have all the vital features. So the law of first mention is very important in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. There is another law that is important to us, that is the law of progressive mention. In other words, a truth can begin with a very simple statement, and then throughout the scriptures that truth develops. Prayer is a good example of the law of progressive mention. Because you have prayer mentioned by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5 and Matthew 6, Ask and you shall receive. Now is that all the truth about prayer? What if, a, what if a person was reading that passage and they said, Ask him, you shall receive. Why? That's it. That's the whole thing. No, that's not the whole thing. And you go all the way through the New Testament, and you learn all those other things about prayer, asking in his name, asking according to the will of God. And as you come to the, finally to the close of the epistles, First John chapter 5 gives us a, a statement about prayer that seems to to be perhaps one of the most important in all the Bible. If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And we know that we have the request that we ask of him. So you see, the truth of, of, of a progressive development of, of teaching is most important in the understanding of Scripture. So, I'm sure you have taken so long with that, but I hope that it will have some influence on us. Because throughout our study, of gathering unto his name, we will try to apply those laws of interpretation. So we are not left to ourselves to say, this is the way we do it. We are bound to understand the scripture according to its own laws. Scripture is interpreted by scripture, not by anything else. Now there is a scriptural definition for church. Church is a wonderful word. The English word may not be so wonderful, but the Greek word from which it comes is wonderful. As you know, it is the word ekklesia, and ekklesia is made up of two words. And to translate those two words into the simplest English form would be to say outcalling. So church means outcalling, and that's the simplest way to say it. I know there are those who say it to call out people and so forth, that's all right. That's not exactly in the word, but that's what we understand by it. But what is in the word itself is simply outcalling. So, how is that word used in the Bible? That to us should be very, very important. 
It is used 115 times in the New Testament. The word church is used 115 times. 111 times it refers to the church which is his body or to a local assembly. And the only way we can know whether it is referring to the large spiritual aspect, the church which is his body, which the Lord says in Matthew 16, I will build, either it refers to that or it refers to a local company. And the only way we can know which is by looking at the context. There's the law of context. You always understand the use of a word in its context. And so whenever we have the context to guide us, we will know clearly whether it is speaking of the body or whether it is speaking of a local company. And the word church in the New Testament has those two meanings. And in, in a spiritual sense, it only has those two meanings. But I said there were 115 mentions of the word church in the New Testament, and that is right. In Acts 19, the word church is found three times. And in Acts 19, it is called in every one of those three cases, assembly. But it is not an assembly of believers. It is actually a, a municipal assembly in the city of Ephesus. Now it's tragic to me, I have often thought this and often, often wondered about it. Wouldn't it have been a lovely thing if the, if the King James translators had just reversed themselves? Wouldn't it have been nice if every time they came across the word ecclesia they had, they had translated the assembly? Except in those three cases in Acts 19 and then they could have called that whatever they wanted. But uh, they didn't do that. They translated the word 111 times, they translated it church. In fact, 112 times they did. Because the one other occasion is in Acts, in the preaching of Stephen, now let me remember in Acts 7, and Stephen speaks of the church which is in the wilderness. It is the only time the word church ever applies to Israel. But don't get alarmed because that exception only proves the rule. Israel is not the church. But it's easy to understand why the Spirit of God through Stephen spoke of that company out in the wilderness as an outcalling. You can understand that, can't you? They were brought out of Egypt. They came to a gathering center. They were God's testimony in that day. And so they are called an outcalling there in, 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 in Stephen's address in Acts 7. But in every other case, now 111 times, the word church has one of two meanings. It is either the body or an assembly. That's the two meanings of the New Testament. Now listen, this is what is so important. No other use of church is in the New Testament. It never means a building. And it would be ridiculous, as all of you know, to call it a, a building a church, because in the New Testament you read about the ears of the church, and you read about the health of the church, and you read about the rest of the church, a church having rest, and a church having ears, and many times you read about a church in a house, and Mr. Archie Stewart used to say, uh, it would be an awful job to get the steeple up through the, the roof, but of course, that is not the meaning of church. It is not a building. Uh, it is a company, an outcalling. And it only has those two meanings, either the body 
or a local assembly. Strange that it has two meanings in the religious world too. The word church has actually two meanings in the religious world. It may have more, but it has at least two major meanings. But the one meaning is a great ecclesiastical system. And this is said without any kind of uh, criticism or at this point uh, trying to be derogatory at all. But you have great systems such as the Presbyterian Church, the, uh, the Episcopal Church, uh, the Baptist Church, uh, and those are great systems, they are great organizations. And the other way that it is used in the New Testament is for a building or for a local congregation, or the other way it is used in the religious world. And oftentimes it is used for a building, as you know. But that is not the way the Spirit of God uses it. The Spirit of God never uses it for the building, but it uses it for the people who gather in the local assembly. It's very interesting to study how the Spirit of God uses the word church. You never, you never have in the New Testament the Church of Galatia. That's interesting. Or the Church of Judea, referring to a, a, a number of assemblies. Never. Supposing there were, supposing there were 50 local assemblies uh, in Jackson County, the Spirit of God in the New Testament never called it the Church of Jackson County. Never. Whenever it's referring to a number of companies, it always calls them churches. And it never puts them together and bends them into a, uh, a confederation and calls that confederation church. Never. Men do that. But the New Testament doesn't do it. And I would challenge anyone to find it in the New Testament, because I have gone through every single reference to church in the New Testament. And I'm absolutely confident that I'm here before you tonight that the Spirit of God never uses it for any association of congregation. Not at any time. There is a case that some have taken up in Acts 9 and 31 where it says that the Church of Judea and Samaria had rest. And it is a singular, although in our King James Version it's a plural, but actually in the original it is a singular. But that church mentioned in Acts 9 and 31 is the church at Jerusalem that was scattered through persecution. So Acts 9 and 31 is referring to one assembly, the assembly at Jerusalem, that had been scattered throughout uh, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. But it was one assembly. Of course, very quickly, those scattered Christians were gathered together in various communities because the very end of that verse tells us about the multiplication of assemblies. But then it uses the word plural. I mean, the word in the plural and doesn't use it in the singular. So in the singular, it never refers to any confederation, an organization of various churches. And we have no authority to do such a thing. Because in this world, God sees two things. In this world, God sees a spiritual body. And in this world, God sees a local company and nothing else. And if we saw that, it would save us from a lot of difficulty in interpreting the Bible. So we use terms that are not right, even, even those of us who try to be careful in how we speak. We use terms that are not right. I sometimes have referred to the early church. And what did I mean by the early church? 
Well, I meant all those assemblies in that time. That's a completely wrong use of the term. You do not speak about the early church unless you're talking about one assembly. You do not talk about the early church. There is no such thing then as the church on earth, except the local assembly. There is no such thing as the church of the 20th century, except it's a local assembly. There is no such thing as the visible church, unless it is a local assembly. In fact, there is no such thing as the church triumphant, or the church militant, unless you are talking about a local assembly. So how wrongly we use those terms, even ourselves, very easy to make a mistake. So in the Bible you have terms like this, the churches of God. And when it is the churches of God, it has to do with their purpose. And when it is the churches of Christ, it has to do with their Lord. And when it is the churches of the saints, it has to do with how they are composed, what makes them up. Believers who are saved and gathered to the Lord's name. When it speaks of the churches of the Gentiles, it's talking about their background, what they came from. And when you read about the churches of Galatia, or any other such expression as that, that refers to their location. As you might speak of the churches of Michigan, the assemblies of Michigan, but you would never say the assembly, referring to a number of them together. Now how do you know the difference between the body or the church that Christ would build and a local, a local company? When you come across the word church in the New Testament and you might say, let me give you an example, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Uh, if I carry long, these things write I unto thee, Paul says to Timothy, and if I carry long, that men may know how they ought to behave themselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. What if someone said to you, is that the local assembly or is that the body? What would you, how would you answer it? Just look at the context. And what is the context? Well, First Timothy chapter 3 is dealing with government in the local assembly. It's dealing with elders and deacons in the local assembly. It's dealing with behavior, how you conduct yourself in the local assembly. The context is the local assembly is clearly crystal. So the church of God in verse 15 is the local assembly. Always use the law of context to understand the meaning of the word. Now, every, every exhortation to behavior, how you live, how you conduct yourself, every one of them is in relation to the local assembly. That's very interesting because the body is spiritual. It's a great spiritual truth. And I don't want to in any way diminish the meaning of the one body. It is one of the greatest truths of the Bible. It is the purpose of God for this age. And I'm going to close quickly and trying now if I can. But the very purpose of God for this age is that God should take out of the nations the people for his name. Acts 15 and verse 14 is a key verse of the Bible. It tells us what God is doing in this present time. By his spirit, through his servants, through the preaching of the gospel, through the teaching of the word of God, God is using this world as the quarry, if you will, as the field, if you will, or even as the ocean, if you're thinking of the pearl. And out of this vast sea, God has one purpose. He is gathering out of it a precious, precious treasure, the church, the body of Christ. And that truth is a wondrous and precious truth. You see, if you grasp that, it would keep you from being involved in the world's politics, for instance. 
It would keep you. It would keep you from being involved with trying to make the world a better place to live. And many dear Christians, true believers, are all taken up with that sort of thing. Mister McBain had a simple illustration that I think is is most helpful at this point. He used to say that in a large city, he saw a vast building under construction, as you often do see, a great skyscraper. And that great skyscraper required a tremendous amount of scaffolding during its construction. You've seen those great buildings, and the network of scaffolding about that building is sometimes larger than the building itself. And of course, when you look at the structure, the first thing you see is the scaffolding, all that paraphernalia that's necessary so men can work on the building. But you don't go up and say. They're building scaffolding here. Not at all. In fact, you don't get taken up with the scaffolding at all, because that's not what's being built. It's the building. The scaffolding is temporary. It's only there until the building is completed, and then the scaffolding all comes down. In fact, it's not until the scaffolding comes down that you say, "Well, now, now they're getting well along with the structure. They're taking down the scaffolding." The scaffolding is being taken down, dear Christian. The scaffolding is coming down. The building is almost complete. The Lord said in Matthew 16, "I will build my church, and this world, and the nations of men, and all that people are occupied with every day of their lives is only the scaffolding. And it's all coming down. That's why we don't spend our time on the scaffolding. That's why we don't try to." Fix it up and patch it up and make it better. Another illustration which has been a very great help to me is to picture a ship at sea, and that ship is rotten in every plank, and a storm is coming. And when that storm comes, there's no hope that that ship will survive the storm. And so, how would you occupy yourself if you were in the vicinity of that of that ship, a rotten ship? And a storm descending upon it. What would you do? Get some nails and and boards and a hammer and try to patch it up? Not at all. You know what you would do? You would do your utmost to save as many people from the wreck as you could get off. That's the business of the believer in the world today. This world is like that ship, rotten in every plank, and the storm is coming. Don't get taken up with the rotten ship. It's taken up with a soul that may be rescued from it before it's destroyed in the storm that's coming. Now, a person that grasps that understands that we're waiting for the rapture. We're waiting for the Lord from heaven. We're not waiting for the world to get better. We know it'll get worse, and we're waiting for the Lord Jesus to come from heaven for His own. It's what you believe about those things that will keep you out of systems like are being formed today. And I am not particularly interested in. In criticizing men's organizations, but the moral majority does not understand what I've just been preaching, because they spend their time and all their efforts in improving the rotten ship, in working on the scaffolding, and all the time that's not God's purpose. Well, tomorrow night we'll deal with that much more fully, I hope, because in in Ephesians chapter three you have the great mystery of this age. And we have only begun the subject, and it was only an introduction, and not a very good one. But I trust you'll have enough appetite to come back, and that God will bless His word to our hearts. Shall we?